0: Famous stories are often misunderstood. We can say it even better. There are plenty of famous stories that are nice, but have a deeper and unexpected meaning. Classic examples come from the well-known stories of Disney Pixar. The 2004 film Finding Nemo is about a young clownfish who is separated from his father and ends up in the prison known as the dentist's office fish tank. Following the movie's release, demand for tropical fish skyrocketed. People across the country flooded pet stores asking if they have Nemo fish. (laughs) Certain parts of the ocean lost uh, their population of clownfish by 75%. So clearly, these people missed the actual meaning of the movie Finding Nemo. Because by purchasing a clownfish, they were separating that clownfish from its family and confining it to a tank. Is anyone catching on? Does this seem slightly familiar, this whole opening? Any clue to what I'm referring? Leave you in suspense for just a moment. moment won't be that long. I used today, just that short paragraph, what was basically the same opening six weeks ago when we were back in Mark 6, 31 to 44. In fact, I used the very two same sentences to start off. And the rest of it I just changed a little bit. I put something different in there. So if you read today's passage in advance, Mark 8, 1 to 9, uh, that might be what it seems like. The same thing, but repackaged. And that's really what a lot of sequels are like, if you think about it. You know, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. It's the plot of Home Alone, except in New York City. Uh, Shrek 2, Rocky 2, Fast and Furious 15. Along the lines, it's along the lines of what we said about Hallmark movies last week. Mark 8, 1 to 9, deals with the feeding of the 4,000. Now, it looks so similar to the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6 that some scholars conclude that it's the same event, but told again. But as we see when we read a little bit more closely, there are too many differences to make that conclusion. Although we still have to wonder why Mark would include a story that is so familiar to what he's already told. Well, as we've seen in much of the book of Mark and as we read throughout Scripture, context matters. What's around it matters. So the main difference between the feeding in Mark 6 and the feeding in Mark 8 is not how many people there were, but who the people were who were fed. So remember... Just keep this in mind as we read. We're going to read it in a minute. Jesus is still in Gentile country. And knowing who he did this for sheds new light on the compassion he feels for this crowd. So if you're not there yet, go ahead and turn. Mark 8, 1 to 9. We are still on page 843 of the Pew Bible. We're going to get beyond it next week. Mark 8, verses 1 to 9. The Holy Spirit, writing through Mark, says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away. It's God's word. This story indicates... That Jesus means for God's kingdom to go global. Jesus is the savior of the world, not just the savior of his homeland of Israel. What this story shows for us is that Jesus comes to people and places forgotten by most, but not forgotten by God. So then the main takeaway, I think, from this time together, Mark 8, 1 to 9, is this. The vast extent of Jesus' compassion fuels our faith and fuels our ministry. The vast extent of Jesus' compassion fuels our faith and fuels our ministry. Now we're going to unfold this story in three steps, and at each step we'll highlight a different character. Now Jesus is the main character along the way, and the other characters respond to him in some way. So we'll begin in the first stage by highlighting Jesus' compassion. And in light of Jesus' compassion in the second stage, we'll see the disciples' unbelief. And in light of Jesus' compassion in the third stage, we'll see the crowd's preview, how they received that compassion and act as a preview for something else to come. So, friends, are you ready? There's something to be said. I was just thinking of this this week uh, about a diligence in gathering together, reading, explaining, applying God's word to our lives. However, friends, we should remember what we're doing. We want to present one another mature in Christ. See his glory that we may be transformed into his likeness, one degree to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 That whole process Friends, you can't microwave that. It takes diligence. You've got to bake it in the oven. You've got to put on the crock pot and let it simmer all day. So this takes diligence. The Bible often uses the image of the hardworking farmer who's steady, hardworking, just takes the plow. So t- today, another Sunday, we are going to take the plow and go to work. And as we do that, we remember it's God who works in us through his word. All that happens with diligence and patience. And even though it's a diligent and patient task, it it requires you just steady, you just keep going, just faithfulness, this is still a great task. It is great to do this. It is a privilege to do this. One reminder of it, what you hold in your hands here, this, we are able to do that because of the blood and work of Christians who've gone before us, who've died so that we can have the Bible in our own language. So friends, knowing what God can do through this time, it may seem like a repetitive task, but God works in it. God works through the repetition. God works through the diligence. And this is a sweet task. This is a privileged task. It's an honor. We need that occasional reminder. So friends, are you ready? All right. First part of this story, Jesus' compassion. Okay? There's one word in the first verse that tips us off that this is a different event than the feeding of the 5,000. I wonder if you could spot that word. Mark 8, verse 1. That word is again. Again. This was my favorite word when I was like three. (laughs) Again, again, a great crowd gathered to Jesus. Again, Jesus would have compassion. Again, Jesus would provide for the crowd. From the very outset, this is proof of Hebrews 13.8. Anybody know that verse? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That little word, again. This unchanging character is because Jesus is truly God. Only God does not waver. Jesus is God become flesh, become man. Just as God the Father's character does not change, neither does God the Son's. So in a single word, again, We get a reminder that Jesus' compassion and power are not a fluke. No. They're who he is. And who he is does not change. So let's lay out the scene. Lay out the scene that we read. Ask some basic questions of it. Okay, this is a good practice to do when approaching any portion of Scripture. Just some basic questions. First question we might ask, where does this take place? Where does this story take place? Well, normally Mark opens a new section by telling that, telling the location, but he doesn't do that here. So that would give us the indication that there's no change of scenery from the last section of Mark. So we assume that Jesus is still in the area known as the Decapolis. It's a group of 10 Gentile cities, southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, predominantly Gentile, that is non-Jewish people live there. That's where this is happening. Another basic question, when does this take place? Well, look at the text, verse 1. We get a general answer, in those days. Must be around the time of the events surrounding what's going on. Another basic question, who is involved? Well, we just read verse 1. We see three main characters. First, Mark mentions the great crowd. Then he uses just the uh, general pronoun, he. That's Jesus. And then he talks about the disciples. These are the characters involved. Who? Another basic question we can ask. What's the dilemma? What's the dilemma? Well, Jesus describes it in verses 2 and 3. Very basic. This crowd has nothing to eat, and many of them have a long journey home. That's the basic layout of what's going on. Kind of next category beyond basic questions is this one. What is it that drives to solve this dilemma? Mainly, like this is the why question. Why do we care about this problem? Why does this story care about this problem? What's the driving force? Well, look at how Jesus begins describing to his disciples what's going on. How does he start off? I have compassion on the crowd. Jesus' compassion is what drives solving this dilemma. Now, we've seen this trait before of Jesus in Mark. We've we've noticed that compassion, the word used for it, represents a deep-seated, gut-wrenching feeling of empathy and love and sympathy for those around you. Compassion. In fact, Jesus' compassion is what drove him to feed the last great crowd he was around in Mark 6. But one key difference between Mark 6 and Mark 8 is the reason for Jesus' compassion. What prompts it? What makes it come up? So in Mark 6, Jesus had compassion because he said, these people were like sheep without a shepherd. Remember, this is a predominantly Jewish crowd. And the Jewish people had leaders who should have nourished and fed and guided and led them. People like the religious authorities, people like Herod Antipas, these leaders failed. And so here's Jesus arriving on the scene as the fulfillment of what God had promised to his people, a shepherd who would feed them and guide them and nourish them. Here in Mark 8, Jesus has compassion again. The reason for it is different. It's a much more human reason. Why does he have compassion? Simply, he sees they're hungry. That drives his compassion. So then we pick apart Jesus' compassion a little bit. I say that we can see at least two things. When Jesus has compassion, two things that he does. Maybe we can get more out of it, but at least there are these things. By having compassion, Jesus recognizes and cares. Jesus both recognizes and cares, and neither of these are insignificant. So friends, who was it that noticed that the crowd was hungry? Was it the crowd who approached Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, I don't know if you know, but we've been out here for three days. And we haven't eaten anything. Do you think you could do something about that? No, Jesus is the one who noticed their need. He's the one who brought it up. Apparently, the crowd was so enthralled with Jesus that they forgot about food for three days. I don't know about you, but that would take a lot for me to do. But Jesus didn't just recognize that they must be hungry. He also thought through their situation. Do you see that? It's as if he placed himself in their shoes and said, they must be hungry. And you know what? If they don't eat, they won't be able to get home. So in his compassion, Jesus recognizes their need, and he cares about it. You see how the compassion would be incomplete without that second step? Caring about it. You know, Jesus could accidentally discover that they were hungry. And then he'd just end up saying, well, you know, that's not my problem. Good luck. <laughs> and considering who this crowd is, a group of Gentiles, Jesus could have said something like that, and his disciples wouldn't have batted an eye. No, Jesus cared most. Not about this crowd's background. He cared most about their hunger. Verse 3. He says that he's determined not to send them away hungry. So at the beginning, we said how Jesus' compassion fuels both our faith and our ministry. So here we see something of his compassion that Jesus recognizes and Jesus cares. Friends, those two things fuel our faith and fuel our ministry. Friends, Jesus recognizing and caring for the need of this crowd fuels our faith because he does the same for us. So for those who have yet to trust in Jesus as the one who saves you from your sin and have yet to follow him as the king of your life, know that Jesus recognizes the needs that you have, both the ones you feel and the ones that you don't feel. You've likely felt the pain that loss brings. You've likely felt the pain of the fleeting nature of finding meaning and purpose in life. You've likely felt the pain of injustice and sin against you and against those around you and in the world generally. You've felt those needs, but also know that Jesus recognizes and cares about even the needs that you don't feel, like the crowd here. When I was seven years old, if it was up to me Every time we went out to a restaurant, I would only drink either chocolate milk or a Shirley Temple. That was it, because those are great drinks. But thankfully, my parents knew what I needed better than I did. I didn't feel the need for water, but that didn't mean I didn't need water. The same works here. Just like he did with the crowd's hunger, so Jesus does with us. He sees what we actually need. And Jesus recognized that long before we did. That if we are going to have peace with God, we need a substitute who lives in our place and dies in our place. Friends, we did not recognize that. The Bible says all we, like sheep, have gone astray, every one of us to his own way. Even when we didn't recognize that, it says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even when we didn't feel the need for it, even when we didn't want it, he did that. Jesus' recognition and care fuels our faith, and it doesn't stop once we become Christians it continues and continues forever. So, brother, sister, are you in a stage in your life? Or have you been in a stage in your life? Or maybe can you even anticipate a stage in your life when you feel forgotten, neglected, passed over, or whatever else? Did you know that Jesus anticipated That we would feel that way from time to time. So, how do we reassure ourselves and fuel our faith that He continues to recognize and care for us in the way He does here in Mark 8? How do we reassure ourselves of that? I think most basically, friends, first you look to the cross. Look to the cross. Paul's logic, Romans 8.32, says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you need to reassure yourself that Jesus recognizes you and cares about you, friend look to the cross. I would say also, look to birds and lilies. Look to birds and lilies. I'm not talking about Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. I'm talking about how Jesus reassures us of the recognition and care that He's won for us from God the Father. Matthew six, He tells His disciples the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds of the air; they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The Lord still recognizes and cares about you, friend. Now, I know we spent a little bit of extra time on this first point. But before we close it out, let me remind you where we are. The dilemma of this story is that there's a group of people who are hungry and need food, or else they won't make it home. Jesus' compassion is what drives to address this dilemma. And by having this compassion, Jesus does at least two things. He recognizes and he cares. This fuels our faith because he recognizes and cares about us as well. We start to see how that is. And close out this first point real quick. Know that Jesus' recognition and care also fuels our ministry. In other words, it acts as a model for us to follow. So, illustrate this. Husbands, you're told to love your wives and to live with your wives in an understanding way. One of the ways you do that is not to wait until your wife says she needs something or tells you how she's feeling. One of the ways you live with your wife in an understanding way is to anticipate what she needs and anticipate how she's feeling. Now, before you tell me how frustrating that is, (laughs) there's another discussion about communication. Instead of being frustrated by that, view that as a chance to reflect how Jesus acts here. Anticipates what they need before they even ask. Jesus is so attuned to those around him that he sees their needs before they do. Friends, if we're going to do the same, we can't live in such a way that this is our world and other people are just living in it. No. We need to step out of the wor- our world that's going to take empathy. It's going to take noticing. It's going to take listening. It's going to take learning. Stepping out of our world means recognizing that just because you don't deal with a certain problem doesn't mean other people don't deal with that problem. Be attuned to what the people around you are going through and anticipate the needs, just as Jesus does here. So, friends, with all the people, and especially within our church, we want to step out of our world, recognize our our needs, and like Jesus, not let people go hungry, both physically and spiritually. That's what Jesus' earliest followers did. Think back to Jesus' last charge to Peter, John 21. What did he tell him? Feed my sheep. Think of uh, the apostles' charge to Paul, Galatians 2. He t- they told him to remember the poor. Paul said, that's the very thing I was eager to do. Mark 8 reminds us that if we've received Jesus' recognition and care, we need to extend that to others as well. All right, that's the first stage. There's actually a story going on. Uh, we haven't gotten very far to this point. We're at the point of the story where we know who's in it, what the problem is, and how Jesus cares about the problem. And remember, Jesus brings up this problem to his disciples. You notice that in verse 1. And the disciples get a chance to respond in verse 4. And thus we enter the second stage of our time, the disciples' unbelief. So, what's Jesus doing? Pours out his heart. Pours out his heart to the, for this group of people to his disciples, and how do they respond? Well, not as they should. And it's not just bad because they kill the mood. I and mean, we've all been there, right? When we're vulnerable with someone and they don't return the favor. When we're in a group setting it's very serious and then someone cracks a joke and just kind of deflates the whole uh, mood. Or when you see it in movies, you know, Han Solo and Princess Leia, she tells him, I love you, he just says, I know. <laughs> this is more than just deflating the moment. This is so bad because... This exact situation happened before. When Jesus told them there was a great crowd that needed to be fed back in Mark 6, how do they respond? Just ask, Jesus, we don't have the money for that. You know how much money it's going to take for us to feed all these people? And here in verse 4, it's basically the same thing. Even to a further extent, They say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? What they're saying is like, look, Jesus, even if we had the money to buy bread, where would we buy it? There's no Costco here. Look where we are. We could say that the guilt of the Gentiles lies in their failure to notice the need of the crowd, come to Jesus, and ask him for help. Yeah, they probably should have done that. Perhaps they still didn't realize that the Gentiles were going to be a part of God's kingdom. Perhaps they still didn't realize that or they remembered what Jesus told the crowd of the 5,000 after he fed them, that they only were with him because they got food. They didn't want to bring up that subject of food again. Their biggest misstep or failure here, though, was failing again to recognize who was in front of them. Failing again to recognize who was in front of them. Of course, no human could feed this crowd but the one in front of them was the son of God who became man the one in front of them is the one who repeatedly did things that only God can do now there are some who say that this story the disciples unbelief in this situation how they repeat the same thing is so blatant so obtuse so obvious that it just can't be real now, friends, if you're thinking that this morning, you vastly underestimate the capacity for human unbelief. One of the disciples later wrote, drawn in fact, that they saw Jesus with their own eyes. They heard him with their ears. They touched him with their hands. They did all of that, and yet at the same time, they responded to him like this in certain moments. Just flat unbelief. Friends, this isn't new to the Bible. It's not new to human experience. Think of Israel in the wilderness. After they've been delivered from Egypt, after they've seen the 10 plagues, after they saw the splitting of the Red Sea, they asked God, take us back to Egypt. Egypt. Both Israel and in the wilderness. And Jesus' disciples show us that spiritual amnesia is real. They show us that we have a scary propensity to forget who God is and what he's done for us in the past. And friends, you may be all on board with that. You say, yep, that's me. I forget who God is all the time. I forget what he's done for me all the time. I want you to hold on for just a second. Because when we read of the disciples' failures, their stubbornness, their lack of faith, I think we're often quicker to laugh at them than to say we're just like them. I think we're quicker to laugh than to humble ourselves. But friends, those things don't mesh together. You can't say, I can forget God pretty easily, and at the same time laugh at the disciples' mistakes. Friends, we need to see ourselves In the disciples more than we do. We need to see ourselves in Israel, in the wilderness. If we don't think we're capable of the same thing, we'll do the same thing. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. In writing about the Israelites in the wilderness, he says they're an example to us. And he tells us, take heed lest you fall. So, yes, the disciples' foibles are... They are laughable because they seem to miss the obvious. But guys, can you honestly say that, can we honestly say that we haven't done the same thing? Can we honestly say that at the end of the day, all our sin is laughable and foolish? Isn't every one of our sins like that? Tragically foolish at that. We see that the disciples fail to believe who Jesus is here. But all of our sin ultimately can be traced back to unbelief. Every single one of them. We choose to disobey God ultimately because we believe our way is better than his. We don't believe that his way is good for us. We choose to disobey God because we believe that he doesn't really care what we do. We choose to diso- disobey God When we believe that he doesn't have our best interests in mind at that moment, but we do. All our sin in some way, trace it back, unbelief. So if we're capable of the same unbelief as the disciples are here, and every one of our sins would scream at us, telling us that's the case, then we must take heed against it. We must take heed against our propensity to unbelief. How do we do that? How do we build up our faith and avoid unbelief? Well, the Bible gives us lots of ways. Steep in his word, seek the Lord in prayer, among a community of people. I think there is one thing, though, that we can do that the disciples failed to do here. That's crucial in stimulating our faith. It fuels it. One simple thing, we remember. We remember. Ask the simple question, how has the Lord been good to you in the past hour, day, week, month, year, decade, lifetime? Why is that so hard to do? Like, it's such a simple thing. I know there are probably lots of reasons for it. I think we're always just in in a rush to the next thing. I mean, look at our news. You guys even remember what we were mad about two weeks ago? I don't. We're just mad. We're just outraged all the time. On to the next thing. So friend, when tempted to unbelief, stop the rush. And remember all that the Lord has done for you. A couple of practical ways to do that. Uh, one, guys, it's not girly. Keep a journal. Seriously, keep a journal. Write down a little something that's going on in your life, how God's moving in your life. Write down something you're learning in Scripture. And on occasionally, every now and then, look back to last year at the same time. Remember what all God has done. Even more important, be deeply folded in to a community of believers. See how we can help one another remember how God has been good to us? You're going through a hard time, struggling, struggling. One of your friends at church comes up to you and says, yeah, hey, remember, remember a couple years ago when you thought you were never going to make it out of that situation and the Lord brought you through it? you remember that? Think of how the disciples could have done that here. Just one, It would have taken one guy. Say, hold on one second. Didn't Jesus feed a crowd of like 20,000 people before? Hey, guys, come on. There's a benefit to a group of people helping to spur one another on, encourage one another. So, friends, the disciples provide us a negative example of how to fuel our faith in the Lord, but it's a lesson we need. There's one more thing I want us to get out of this stage Jesus' patience with the disciples in approaching them in the same exact situation as he had before. That informs our approach to other people who don't know the Lord. Uh, so, some of you here remember. The epic games of wiffle ball we had in the gym. Now, if you don't know what wiffle ball is, wiffle ball is baseball with a pla- with a plastic bat and ball. And you don't know a man truly until you've seen him play wiffle ball. <laughs> so now, how we normally would do it is that we would uh, teams would be composed of all ages, and the batting order would normally be from smallest to tallest. And when you pitch to the, the youngsters you'd give them some leeway, okay? When you toss it, you try to put not too much arc on it, not too fast. You get up as close as you can without getting hit by the bat. (laughs) And you basically give them unlimited strikes. Sometimes that's still not enough. I don't know if that's any of you in here. In real baseball, when that's the case, what do you do? There's a whole league for it. It's called tee ball You put the ball on the T so that it's stationary. It doesn't even move at all. Here is Jesus, not just giving the disciples a softball. He's putting the ball on the T. He's already fed a great crowd of people. And here's another great crowd, and he said them, Hey, hey, guys, what should we do? On the T. And they swing and miss. Think about how this might inform how we approach other people. You might have family, friends, neighbors. You talk with them about deep things of life. You've mentioned how you've gone to church and mentioned your relationship with the Lord. Maybe you shared the gospel once or twice. You've just concluded, you know, they just don't have any interests. You know, there's, no, there's no way. You maybe you've even gotten to the point where the gospel just seems so blatantly obvious to you, but they can't see it. will you put the ball on the tee again? So what happens, I'm going to back to the analogy for a second, what happens in tee ball when put the ball on tee, stationary, doesn't even move, you give them unlimited strikes, and the kids still can't hit the ball? I'm sorry if that was any of you here. <laughs> what happens then? Well then dad comes up. Dad comes up behind his, his son or daughter, he wraps his arms around, around him or her, and He swings so that they hit the ball, but it's not because of what's in them. It's because of what their dad is doing. On our own, friends, we can't hit the ball, even when it's on a tee. God must come and give us faith. So we got to ask ourselves, will we keep putting the ball on the tee for the people we know who don't know Christ? Do you know most people don't respond to the gospel until the fifth or sixth time they hear it? Those are just stats. But the truth is, God must give faith. So let Christ's patience here encourage you not to give up. Put the ball on the tee again and pray that God gives faith. All right, we haven't even got to the good part of the story yet. Uh, Last stage. You follow along as I read. Verses 5 to 9. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there are about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. So Jesus came to his disciples with a dilemma. He pours out his heart for the people. The disciples, just nothing. Fail to recognize that Jesus is the one who can provide for this dilemma. But Jesus goes on to do what he did before. Feeds a large group of people with a small amount of food. And it's at this final stage of the story that we see the most differences between this one and the one that happened in Mark 6. So just some examples. Um, Ironically, Jesus has more loaves and fish for less people in this story. The commentator Matthew Henry says that this illustrates to the disciples to make the best with what we have. Uh, Other differences, Jesus tells them to sit but not sit in groups like he did in Mark 6. Another difference is that the ground they sit on isn't the green grass like it was in Mark 6. Maybe that's saying something about the season or the place. Another difference is that Jesus gives thanks here instead of blesses, although that's similar. Another difference is that here they eat in stages. They don't eat all at once like they did in Mark 6. Uh, Another difference, you know, the obvious one, is that the total number of people was 4,000 instead of 5,000 men, not including women and children. And finally, there's the difference that the amount of leftovers is different from one to the next. These are two different events, friends. But the biggest difference, one I didn't mention, but mentioned at the beginning, the one that's most significant, this is a group of Gentiles. And even though there's this difference, you know what's still the same? Both crowds are fed. Whether it's been the Syrophoenician woman, the deaf and mute man and the Decapolis we saw last week, or this giant Gentile crowd here at the beginning of Mark 8, Jesus' compassion extends to those who've been forgotten and to those who are thought to be unreachable. If we know what's been going on in the Bible, what's been going on since the beginning, this shouldn't be that much of a surprise. Jesus is the fulfillment of what God had already planned. For those from every tribe, tongue, and language to be a part of God's people. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 was that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Places like 1 Kings 8, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, we see that God's promise and purpose for his people Israel was to be a light to the nations. That the countries around them could see who the one true God is and come to him. Like we read in Jonah, we see God's heart for a wicked Gentile people in Nineveh. This plan, this heart that Jesus has here, it's not new. Jesus fulfills God's intention and plan. He reflects who God is perfectly to all the nations, and he brings blessing to them. The provision here to the Gentile crowd is a preview of his provision he would give them with his own life. Jesus gave his life so that whoever would repent of their sins and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins would be included in God's people, whoever, Jew or Gentile. That's the truth that we read in Ephesians 3. The mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In a moment, friends, we will display that in the Lord's Supper. That we are recipients of this plan and promise and fulfillment of it. That Jesus provided for this kind of crowd fuels our faith because we are this kind of crowd. We are this kind of crowd. The good news is that anyone can get in on this. We too are recipients of this fulfilled plan. Part of God's larger story of salvation. That God has provided a perfect and final sacrifice for sin for anyone who would believe. Jew or Gentile. So, friends, what are two different feasts in Mark? Mark six and Mark eight. One predominantly Jewish, one predominantly Gentile. Those two feasts will one day be one feast in heaven, before the throne. God's people made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation, falling at his feet, casting their crowns before his feet. We close by thinking how Jesus' compassion to the Gentiles fuels not just our faith, but our ministry. Jesus is building his church, redeeming those from all around the world, redeeming those who would naturally be on their own, completely different from one another. But they're brought into the same family, united around the gospel. Now, the Lord isn't done building his church, We're still waiting for that final feast. That unifying power of the gospel, though, is there and in here. Right now, it's here right now. We closed last week talking about previews. We're going to do the same. Right now, local churches are meant to preview that final feast. In the same chapter, Ephesians 3, Paul writes that God's glory and wisdom are made known in the present age. How? Through the church, through the unifying power of the gospel. That Jews and Gentiles could exist in the same group of people and not just not kill one another, but actually love one another. Nothing else could explain that besides God's work. That's what we want to be. That should be our prayer, our vision for this church. That we may have so much differences that the world may see, but we are united around something deeper the gospel of our Lord, that we have a common Savior, a common Lord. And God's power is made known in that. God's glory is made known in transcending what would divide us naturally. So Jesus has come to fulfill God's plan, to bring in people from every nation. And that's the plan previewed here in the feeding of the 4,000 in the Gentile territory. Friends, there's still work to be done in bringing about that great feast. So we take the plow and we go. Following Jesus' commission to make disciples of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Matthew 28. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what drove the apostles. That God's name would be made known to the nations. So Jesus is for all people. This makes this not your typical sequel the feeding of the 4,000. So friends, let's display that here. Let's keep working toward that here. Let's pray. God, thank you for your compassion to us. Oh, Lord Jesus, this is your grace that we did not even know we needed this and yet you still sought us out. And God, thank you for, for dying for us that we may be recipients of this fulfilled plan to be at peace with you, to be your children. God, would we reflect and extend the love you have for us to other people? Would we be patient with others as you were patient with us? And would we look toward that final feast where your glory will be made known? We can't wait. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.